A Thousand Miles Up the Nile, Section 54. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Thousand Miles Up the Nile by Amelia B. Edwards. Chapter 18. Discoveries at Abu Simbel, Part 3. On this wall, in a space between the sacred boat and the figure of Ramesses, occurs the following inscription, sculptured in high relief and elaborately colored. Translation. Said by Thoth, the Lord of Sesenu, residing in Amenheri, I give to thee an everlasting sovereignty over the two countries, O son of my body, beloved, Ragusurma Sotep Unra, acting as propitiator of thy Ka. I give to thee myriads of festivals of Ramesses, beloved of Amun, Ragusurma Sotep Enra, as prince of every place where the sun-disk revolves. The beautiful living God, the maker of beautiful things for his father Thoth, lord of Sesenu, residing in Amenheri. He made mighty and beautiful monuments for ever facing the eastern horizon of heaven. The meaning of which is that Thoth, addressing Ramesses II, then living and reigning, promises him a long life and many anniversaries of his jubilee, in return for the works made in his, Thoth's, honor at Abu Simbel and elsewhere. North Wall At the upper end of this wall is depicted a life-sized female figure, wearing an elaborate blue headdress surmounted by a disc and two ostrich feathers. She holds in her right hand the ankh, and in her left the jackal-headed scepter. This not being the scepter of a goddess, and the headdress resembling that of the queen as represented on the façade of the Temple of Hathor, I conclude we have here a portrait of Nefertari corresponding to the portrait of Ramesses on the opposite wall. Near her stands a table of offerings, on which, among other objects, are placed four vases of a rich blue color traversed by bands of yellow. They perhaps represent the kind of glass known as the false murine. Each of these vases contains an object like a pine, the ground color of which is deep yellow, patterned over with scale-like subdivisions in vermilion. We took them to represent grains of maize pyramidically piled. Lastly, a pendant to that opposite wall comes the sacred bari. It is, however, turned the reverse way, with its prow towards the east, and it rests upon an altar in the centre of which are the cartouches of Ramesses II, and a small hieroglyphic inscription signifying, Beloved by Amun-Ra, king of the gods resident in the land of Kenis. Beyond this point, at the end nearest the northeast corner of the chamber, the piled sand conceals whatever else the wall may contain in the way of decoration. EAST WALL If the east wall is decorated like the others, which may be taken for granted, its tableaus and inscriptions are hidden behind the sand which here rises to the ceiling. The doorway also occurs in this wall, occupying a space four feet three and one-half inches in width on the inner side. One of the most interesting incidents connected with the excavation of this little adytum remains yet to be told. I have described the female figure at the upper end of the north wall, and how she holds in her right hand the ankh, and in her left the jackal-headed scepter. The hand that holds the ankh hangs by her side. The hand that holds the scepter is half-raised. Close under this upraised hand, at the height of between three and four feet from the actual level of the floor, 
there were visible upon the uncolored surface of the original stucco several lines of freehand writing. This writing was laid on, apparently, with the brush, and the ink, if it had ever been black, had now become brown. Five long lines and three shorter lines were uninjured. Below these were traces of other fragmentary lines, almost obliterated by the sand. We knew at once that this quaint, faint writing must be in either the heretic or demotic hand. We could distinguish, or thought we could distinguish, in its vague outlines of forms already familiar to us in the hieroglyphs, abstracts, as it were, of birds and snakes and boats. There could be no doubt, at all events, that the thing was curious, and we set it down in our minds as the writing of either the architect or decorator of the place. Hieratic Inscription, North Wall of Spios. Translated by S. Birch, Esquire. Thy son having, thou hast conquered the worlds at once Amun-Ra, Harmachis, the god at the first time, who gives life, health, and a time of many praises to the groom. Of the Ken, son of the royal son of Cush, opener of the road, maker of transport boats, giver of instructions to his lord, Amun-Shah. Anxious to make, if possible, an exact facsimile of this inscription, the writer copied it three times. The last and best of these copies is here reproduced in photolithography, with a translation from the pen of the late Dr. Birch. We all know how difficult it is to copy correctly in a language of which one is ignorant, and the tiniest curve or dot omitted is fatal to the sense of these ancient characters. In the present instance, notwithstanding the care with which the transcript was made, there must still have been errors, for it has been found undecipherable in places, and in these places there occur inevitable lacunae. Enough, however, remains to show that the lines were written, not as we had supposed by the artist, but by a distinguished visitor, whose name, unfortunately, is illegible. The visitor was a son of the Prince of Cush, or, as it is literally written, the royal son of Cush, that being the official title of the governor of Ethiopia. As there were certainly eight governors of Ethiopia during the reign of Ramesses II, and perhaps more whose names have not reached us, it is impossible even to hazard a guess at the parentage of our visitor. We gather, however, that he was sent hither to construct a road, also that he built transport boats, and that he exercised priestly functions in that part of the temple which was inaccessible to all but dignitaries of the sacerdotal order. Site inscriptions and decorations taken into account, there yet remains this question to be answered. What was the nature and character of the monument just described? It adjoined a pylon, and, as we have seen, consisted of a vaulted proneos in crude brick, and an adidum excavated in the rock. On the walls of this adidum are depicted various gods with their attributes, votive offerings, and portraits of the king performing acts of adoration. The bari, or ark, is also represented upon the north and south walls of the adidum. These are unquestionably the ordinary features of a temple or chapel. On the other hand, there must be noted certain objections to these premises. It seemed to us that the pylon was built first, and that the south boundary wall of the Proneos, being a subsequent erection, 
was supported against the slope of the pylon as far as where the spring of the vaulting began, besides which the pylon would have been a disproportionately large adjunct to a little monument the entire length of which, from the doorway of the Proneus to the west wall of the Adidum, was less than forty-seven feet. We therefore concluded that the pylon belonged to the large temple, and was erected at the side, instead of in front of the façade, on account of the very narrow space between the mountain and the river. The pylon at Com Ambo is probably for the same reason placed at the side of the temple and on a lower level. To those who might object that a brick pylon would hardly be attached to a temple of the first class, I would observe that the remains of a similar pylon are still to be seen at the top of what was once the landing-place leading to the great temple at Wadi Halfa. It may therefore be assumed that this little monument, although connected with the pylon by means of a doorway and staircase, was an excrescence of later date. Being an excrescence, however, was it, in the strict sense of the word, a temple. Even this seems to be doubtful. In the Adytum there is no trace of any altar, no fragment of stone dais or sculptured image, no granite shrine as at Philae, no sacred recess as at Dendera. The standard of Horus Eroes, engraven on page 340, occupies the centre place upon the wall facing the entrance, and occupies it not as a tutelary divinity, but as a decorative device to separate the two large subjects already described. Again the gods represented in these subjects are Ra and Amun-Ra, the tutelary gods of the great temple. But if we turn to the dedicatory inscription on page 344, we find that Thoth, whose image never occurs at all upon the walls, unless as one of the little gods in the cornice, is really the presiding deity of the place. It is he who welcomes Ramesses and his offerings, who acknowledges the glory given to him by his beloved son, and who, in return for the great and good monuments erected in his honour, promises the king that he shall be given an everlasting sovereignty over the two countries. Now Thoth was par excellence the god of letters. He is styled the lord of divine words, the lord of the sacred writings, the spouse of truth. He personifies the divine intelligence. He is the patron of art and science, and he is credited with the invention of the alphabet. In one of the most interesting of Champollion's letters from Thebes, he relates how, in the fragmentary ruins of the western extremity of the Ramesseum, he found a doorway adorned with the figures of Thoth and Sapphic, Thoth as the god of literature, and Sapphic inscribed with the title of Lady President of the Hall of Books. At Dendera there was a chamber especially set apart for the sacred writings, and its walls are sculptured all over with a catalogue raisonné of the manuscript treasures of the temple. At Edfu a kind of closet built up between two pillars of the Hall of Assembly was reserved for the same purpose. Every temple, in short, had its library, and as the Egyptian books, being written on papyrus or leather, rolled up and stored in coffers, occupied but little space, the rooms appropriated to this purpose were generally small. It was Dr. Birch's opinion that our little monument may have been the library of the great temple of Abu Simbel. This being the case, the absence of an altar and the presence of Ra and Amun-Ra in the two principal tableaus are sufficiently accounted for. The tutelary deity of the great temple and the patron deity of Ramesses II would naturally occupy, in this subsidiary structure, 
the same places that they occupy in the principal one, while the library, though in one sense the domain of Thoth, is still under the protection of the gods of the temple to which it is an adjunct. I do not believe we once asked ourselves how it came to pass that the place had remained hidden all these ages long, yet its very freshness proved how early it must have been abandoned. If it had been opened in the time of the successors of Ramesses II, they would probably, as elsewhere, have interpolated inscriptions and cartouches, or have substituted their own cartouches for those of the founder. If it had been opened in the time of the Ptolemies and Caesars, travelling Greeks and learned Romans, and strangers from Byzantium and the cities of Asia Minor, would have cut their names on the door-jams and scribbled ex-votos on the walls. If it had been opened in the days of Nubian Christianity, the sculptures would have been coated with mud, and washed with lime, and daubed with pious caricatures of St. George and the Holy Family. But we found it intact, as perfectly preserved as a tomb that had lain hidden under the rocky bed of the desert. For these reasons, I am inclined to think that it became inaccessible shortly after it was completed. There can be little doubt that a wave of earthquake passed during the reign of Ramesses II, along the left bank of the Nile, beginning possibly above Wadi Halfa, and extending at least as far north as Gurf Hussein. Such a shock might have wrecked the temple at Wadi Halfa, as it dislocated the pylon of Wadi Sabua, and shook the built-out porticoes of Dur and Gurf Hussein, which last four temples, as they do not, I believe, show signs of having been added to by later pharaohs, may be supposed to have been abandoned in consequence of the ruin which had befallen them. Here, at all events, it shook the mountain of the great temple, cracked one of the Osiride columns of the first hall, shattered one of the four great colossi, more or less injured the other three, flung down the great brick pylon, reduced the proneos of the library to a heap of ruin, and not only brought down part of the ceiling of the excavated adidum, but rent open a vertical fissure in the rock some twenty or twenty-five feet in length. With so much irreparable damage done to the great temple, and with so much that was repairable calling for immediate attention, it is no wonder that these brick buildings were left to their fate. The priests would have rescued the sacred books from among the ruins, and then the place would have been abandoned. So much by way of conjecture. As hypothesis, a sufficient reason is perhaps suggested for the wonderful state of preservation in which the little chamber had been handed down to the present time. A rational explanation is also offered for the absence of later cartouches, of Greek and Latin exvotos, of Christian emblems, and of subsequent mutilation of every kind. For save that one contemporary visitor, the son of the royal son of Cush, the place contained, when we opened it, no record of any passing traveller, no defacing autograph of tourist, archaeologist, or scientific explorer. Neither Belzoni nor Champollion had found it out, even Lepsius had passed it by. It happens sometimes that hidden things, which in themselves are easy to find, escape detection because no one thinks of looking for them. But such was not the case in this present instance. Search had been made here again and again, and even quite recently. It seems that when the Khedive entertains distinguished guests and sends them in gorgeous dahabiyas up the Nile, he grants them a virgin mound, or so many square feet of a famous necropolis, lets them dig as deep as they please, and allows them to keep whatever they may find. Sometimes he sends out scouts to beat the ground, and then a tomb is found and left unopened, and the illustrious visitor is allowed to discover it. 
When the scouts are unlucky, it may even sometimes happen that an old tomb is restocked, carefully closed up, and then with all the charm of unpremeditation reopened a day or two after. Now Sheikh Rashwan Eben Hassan el-Kashif told us that in 1869, when the Empress of the French was at Abu Simbel, and again when the Prince and Princess of Wales came up in 1872, after the Prince's illness, he received strict orders to find some hitherto undiscovered tomb, in order that the Khedive's guest might have the satisfaction of opening it. But, he added, although he left no likely place untried among the rocks and valleys on both sides of the river, he could find nothing. To have unearthed such a burba as this would have done him good service with the government, and have ensured him a splendid bakshish from prince or empress. As it was, he was reprimanded for want of diligence, and he believed himself to have been out of favor ever since. I may here mention, in order to have done with this subject, that besides being buried outside to a depth of eight feet, the adytum had been partially filled inside by a gradual infiltration of sand from above. This can only have accumulated at the time when the old sand-drift was at its highest. That drift, sweeping in one unbroken line across the front of the great temple, must at one time have risen to a height of twenty feet above the present level. From thence the sand had found its way down the perpendicular fissure already mentioned. In the corner behind the door the sand-pile rose to the ceiling, in shape just like the deposit at the bottom of an hour-glass. I am informed by the painter that when the top of the doorway was found, and an opening first effected, the sand poured out from within like water escaping from an open sluice. <laughs> Here, then, is positive proof, if proof were needed, that we were first to enter the place, at all events since the time when the great sand-drift rose as high as the top of the fissure. The painter wrote his name and ours with the date, February 16, 1874, on a space of blank wall over the inside of the doorway, and this was the only occasion upon which any of us left our names upon an Egyptian monument. On arriving at Carrasco, where there is a post-office, he also dispatched a letter to the Times, briefly recording the facts here related. That letter, which appeared on the 18th of March following, is reprinted in the appendix at the end of this book. I am told that our names are partially effaced, and that the wall-paintings which we had the happiness of admiring in all their beauty and freshness are already much injured. Such is the fate of every Egyptian monument, great or small. The tourist carves it all over with names and dates, and in some instances with caricatures. The student of Egyptology, by taking wet paper squeezes, sponges away every vestige of the original color. The collector buys and carries off everything of value that he can get, and the Arab steals for him. The work of destruction, meanwhile, goes on apace. There is no one to prevent it, there is no one to discourage it. Every day more inscriptions are mutilated, more tombs are rifled, more paintings and sculptures are defaced. The Louvre contains a full-length portrait of Seti I, cut out bodily from the walls of his sepulchre in the Valley of the Tombs of the Kings. The museums of Berlin, of Turin, of Florence, are rich in spoils which tell their own lamentable tale. When science leads the way, is it wonderful that ignorance should follow? End of section 54